Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer JJ O'Shea looks at the ways in which the Irish in America helped the Jewish immigrants escaping the pogroms of 19th century Russia to overcome problems of prejudice, poverty and outsider status in the New World. In The Shamrock and the Star. In the latter half of the 19th century and into the early decades of the 20th century, floods of Jewish immigrants arrived into North America. They were escaping persecution in the pogroms of Eastern Europe and Russia. And more than any other single group, it was the Irish who helped them establish a secure footing in the new country. And to do so without compromising their Jewish identity. This is a part of the American immigration story that, until recently, has been almost completely overlooked. Hassia Diner, Professor of American Jewish History. Each kind of immigrant ethnic group, as it's written its history, as it's told its story, focuses on itself. We did this and we did that. Jews, Italians, Irish, Poles, they tell their story, it's about what they did. Okay, rarely do they look outward and talk about interactions with other people or the way in which their American um, history intersected with the histories of, of, of other people. And it's always them and the Americans, as though the Americans were this sort of undifferentiated whole, uh, which we know was not the case. There wouldn't be an east side in the city of New York if it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews. And perhaps this story feels counterintuitive because our perception has been unduly coloured by later events and the well-documented tensions that also arose between the Irish and the Jews in America. Within the annals of American Jewish history, both in terms of the scholarship and also in terms of the, um, should I call it, uh, the communal memory, when the word Irish comes up, it's they're all anti-Semites. And uh, so what do they point to? Father Coughlin, okay, so, you know, who was this radio priest in the um, 1930s, who by about 1937, when he soured on Roosevelt became a huge critic of Roosevelt. He also sour takes on the Jews. And, you know, he, he gives a famous uh, um, broadcast uh, right after Kristallnacht in, in, in Germany in November 1938. And he said, wait till Hitler comes to America. And um, he had, you know, I think they say 40 million listeners. And there's some elements of the Irish population and of the uh, Catholic uh uh, population as a whole that that embraced him. We don't we don't have the numbers. So, uh, but he was definitely there. He definitely did what he did. Um, uh, the again in the American Jewish rhetoric about uh, the Irish, there's always this emphasis. Well, people would go to church and the priest would talk about the Jews cr- killed Christ and uh, they were Christ killers. Okay, and I guess one other is that there's lots of stories about. Um, uh, Jewish, particularly immigrant kids, you know, in, in these sort of mixed ethnic neighborhoods in New York and Chicago and Boston, um, getting beaten up by Irish 
boys. It was never girls <laughs> and it was never adults. It was always, you know, these uh, uh, thugs on the street and they would, uh, you know, behave in pretty horrible way, uh, sort of kid by kid or gang, you know, gangs beating up a Jewish kid on the way to school. Again, very hard to quantify. I mean, did that happen every day? Did I... So though that's how that story has been told. And it was assumed that all of those incidents or manifestations of anti-Judaism or anti-Semitism were therefore completely reflective of the Irish. But this is far from the complete picture. In an ethnically complicated, democratic society, nobody makes it on their own. Each wave of immigrants benefits from those who've come before from those who've learnt to work within the new system and to make that system work for them. And in America, in the world of the arts, politics, business, media and education, it was the Irish who opened doors, gave guidance and support and formed partnerships with the Jewish immigrants. Not necessarily from altruistic motives or ideologies, but because they had common goals and common enemies. The Irish who are there in enormous numbers, who have uh, settled themselves down in American cities, who have uh, captured certain segments of the economy and uh, the political structure, recognized that they could hold on to what they had gained by reaching out to the Jews. And the Jews come and they need help. Okay, They knew, uh, despite what historians later said, they couldn't do it on their own. Somebody had to open a door for them, and it was the Irish. MacDonald built the subway and his name we'll not forget. A word of praise is due to Nathan Strauss. Both groups had an interest in connecting with, with the other. And um, so it's not a story about ideological commitments to religious tolerance, although that may have developed. And it wasn't necessarily a story of um, belief in cultural pluralism, although that may have developed also. But rather, both had reasons for embarking on this relationship. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually turning this into a book which is at least tentatively called Opening Doors or When the Irish Helped the Jews Become American. Talk about a combination Hear my words and make a note On St. Patrick's Day, Rosinski Pins a shamrock on his coat It was a question of timing. The Irish preceded the arrival of the Jews in any great numbers, and while there had been emigration of the Irish into America since colonial times, mainly from Presbyterian and Protestant Northern Ireland, there was a whole new wave in the 19th century. Mick Maloney. There were many famines that took place between, say, 1800 and 1840, uh, and a kind of a steady exodus of mostly Catholic Irish to different parts of America, but mostly urban America. And of course, that intensified after the Great Irish Famine. The Great Irish Famine of the 1840s was a perfect storm of events. This was not emigration in the conventional sense of the word. Historian Cahill Mansfield. There were refugees worrying for their lives, basically. There were economic refugees, and they needed desperately to get out. 
as they were living through a time of the collapse of the lower level of Irish rural society. And anything that float was pressed into service. So you get the idea of the coffin ships, particularly to British North America. And ships in those days weren't generally designed for passenger traffic. So they were crammed into the holes any old which way out. And then the ships would pick up a cargo and bring it back the other direction. <laughs> so they were being carried as freight almost rather than as people. And that took some while to stabilise. During the course of the famine, people had expected, well, this will sort itself out and emigration will fall away once the crops have stabilised and the potato is healthy again. But it didn't, as we know. It seems to have started a process which was self-generating thereafter. Once ship owners became aware that emigration was a trend that might continue, they began to organise for it and ships began to be designed for passenger use. It was not necessarily comfortable. You'd be down in the holes in your bunks and hammocks and whatever and sharing the accommodation with the rats and you're looking maybe if the captain had chicken sufficient food for the voyage and you'd better bring your own and hope nobody stole it from you or the rats didn't eat it on you. It wasn't at all comfortable. These were still desperate times and desperate measures. And it was a brave thing to do to cross the ocean in those days. All going well at an average crossing would take a month. It could take six weeks, it could take longer. And the preferred times to go are April and May for sailing ships, apparently these were the optimum times. Uh, and even so, over the period from about 1847 to 1853, there was something like 47 ships lost. And you might never know it was gone, just that they'd nobody word or came back from the far side. Wreckage might be found or it was just written off. Um, uh, in the mid-1850s, you begin to have iron-hulled ships powered by engines. Not necessarily still more comfortable, but safer. And it brings the crossing time down to two weeks on average, less dependent on weather. You still get tossed around, but there's a very slow and steady improvement. Most of the exodus was to the big American cities, and the Irish were heavily involved in the construction of America. Canal building, railroad building, and the industrial trades, coal and copper mining, domestic service initially for the women and later in the field of education. They were also making inroads in the world of politics, local politics. And the entertainment industry was another area where the Irish made a mark. In fact, they made the entertainment industry almost their own. And later, we'll see how the entertainment industry proved to be a very fertile ground for Irish-Jewish partnerships. Of course, the world of entertainment has always offered an avenue of hope to the poorer sections of society and early on the Irish became established in the public mind with music and song. Mick Maloney is an ethnomusicologist and musician with a special interest in this era. Going back to the early years of the, of the 19th century, um, the most uh, certainly uh, best-selling composer and most popular composer of Irish song in America was Thomas Moore. Uh, and, and Moore's melodies, songs like The Minstrel Boy to the War Has Gone, The Last Rose of Summer, which was the second bestseller throughout the 19th century of, of American music in all forms. Uh, and uh, believe me, if all these endearing young charms, songs like those were widely known uh, to people who were not Irish and known as Irish songs. Um, and uh, countless volumes of Moore's melodies were printed and sold in America. 
and, and became part of, of, of American music. And Stephen Foster, whose family roots were in Derry, was another hugely popular songwriter. When you hear songs like Jeannie with the light brown hair or Beautiful Dreamer, um, they were deeply influenced by his regard for Thomas Moore and, and the lyrical quality of Moore's songs. But a whole new form of, of, of Irish-American song that you, you, you could say could not have been written in Ireland developed. And the Irish was central to the single most popular national entertainment on the American stage, both as performers and managers. Minstrelsy. Today we recoil at the notion of blackface minstrelsy and we're appalled by the casual racism that underpins it. But it was an enormous phenomena with troops performing all over America and it sowed the seeds of what would become musical theatre and vaudeville. Stephen Foster began his career in minstrelsy as did the man who became the most famous figure of musical theatre. He was a man whose family roots were in County Cork and his name was Ned Harrigan. And Harrigan's uh, he, he, skills were considerable. He was a, a great banjo player. He was a, a great playwright. Um, he was a, um, a good singer. He, he described his voice as a mongrel tenor. Um, and a great songwriter, but... His, his skills were more, more in, in, as a wordsmith. He was known as the, the Dickens of America, sometimes the Moliere of America, the Euripides of America. Uh, and he wrote songs about tenement life, particularly in, in places like New York City. But um, he had to collaborate with a, a, a person who, who wrote the melodies, and, and that person was a man called David Brame. And, and David Brame was a pit orchestra conductor that Harrigan teamed up with. And they created between them what um, we could call today musical theatre, musical comedy or reviews, um, where full-length plays were written with recognisable characters, where music and dance uh, and song were integrated into the action. Um, and it was different than variety theatre, which is a bit of this and a bit of that, you know, which eventually became vaudeville. But musical theatre, you could you could uh, you could you could lay at the door of of of, of Ned Harrigan. He dominated the New York stage in the eighteen seventies. I mean, people like Gilbert and Sullivan came; they were in his shadow. Uh, every other form of entertainment was in the shadow of Ned Harrigan. But his major collaborator was David Brame when it came to songs. They wrote over three hundred songs between them. But David Brame's uh, family name was actually Abrams. Uh, and they came as immigrants from London, and they dropped the A there because of anti-Semitism. Uh, and uh, Ned Harrigan gets married to uh, to his collaborator's daughter, uh, uh, and uh, and he, he gets married to her, and uh, and and they're the first Irish Irish Jewish combo, uh, David Brame and Ned Harrigan, uh, in in, um, in in American music. Uh, and uh, basically a Jewish-Irish uh, household as well. Down in Bottle Alley lived Timothy McNally, a decent politician and a gentleman at that. Beloved by all the ladies, the gossons and the babies that occupy the building called McNally's Row of Flats. 
and it's Ireland and Italy, Jerusalem and Germany, Chinese and Africans and a paradise for rats. My favourite song of of Harrigans, which really became the the title of an album that I I did exclusively of of Harrigan and and Bray material, is called McNally's Row Flats. Which gives a, it, it, it's it's so it's it's so uh, descriptive of tenement life, Ireland and Italy, Jerusalem and Germany, Chinese and Africans and a paradise for rats, all jumbled up together in the snow and rainy weather. They constitute the tenants in McNally's row of flats. And the second verse of it is that great conglomeration of men from every nation, the Tower of Babylonium. You couldn't equal that. A peculiar institution where the brogues without dilution rattled on together in McNally's row of flats. There's not a finer verse in American popular song than that. And that precedes Tin Pan Alley. And as we'll see, many Irish-Jewish partnerships were forged in Tin Pan Alley as the numbers of Jewish immigrants increased. There had been Jewish emigration into America as early as the 17th century, and the 19th century saw a small wave after the defeat of Napoleon when restrictions concerning the Jews returned. Just keep in mind that in those days, you know, um, Jews lived often under, they were, it was, they were told where they could live, what they could do, and... Um, even what to wear. Hitler's yellow stars weren't the first like. In comparison to what was to come, it wasn't a vast wave, but there was some movement. After 1848, there was some movement too, mostly out of Germany. But the real movement of Jews to America and to a lesser extent to Britain came in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century. And this was driven primarily by Jewish life in, in Russia. Along the western border of Russia, almost in the Baltic, almost down to Odessa, there was a lot of Jewish settlement there. They had come up there in medieval times from, from mid the Rhineland, where they were getting a very bad time. And at that, ter- at that time, all that territory was Polish. And the kings of Poland weren't bothered. They allowed them in and they gave them a, a, a wide degree of autonomy. In the 18th century, all those areas passed under Russian control. And now in the late 19th century... There's a great, there's virulent anti-Semitism running up and down those areas, partly egged on by the state, if not encouraged by the state. In the former Polish kingdom, most of the Jews wound up in Russia, although a luckier few wound up in the Austrian Empire, which sprawled over into that part of the world and where they received a degree of protection. The Austrian emperor Franz Josef set his face sternly against anti-Semitism in any form, and the Jews in Galicia used to call themselves the Emperor's Jews because he would protect them against whatever shenanigans the local officials might try and work on them. Russian Jews had no such protector. For example, in Odessa, which in those days was a very cosmopolitan trading city uh, with a rich cultural life of opera houses and theatres and cafe society, and there was Greeks and there was Jews and there's Turks and there's Russians and there's Ukrainians and there's Germans and there's Austrians, and they broke out a pogrom, a kind of a full-scale riot, and all those communities ganged up on the Jews. So while on the surface is a fine modern city underneath, ancient hatreds are working away all the time. 
When they arrived in America, where power still lay with a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite, the Jews were very much the outsider. The USA wasn't necessarily going to welcome them with open arms and have brass bands on the streets. And there would be discrimination and all those other things that they knew about from their, their daily lives. But, I mean, uh, word travelled back and forth even in days of slow communication. And they knew this, that the United States had no doctrine on religion. Um, the United States had no uh, interest in what you wore or where, where you worked or where you lived. And... So far as they could find out, there never had been any riots or pogroms or anything like that. So it was as good a shot as any. This is Documentary on News Talk, and this is The Shamrock and the Star. The Irish politicians and ward bosses were quick to see the value of these new immigrants who, like the Irish, didn't have anything to go back to. They came on a one-way ticket. The Jews arrive in such large number at a moment in time where, now remember they're they're also arriving when there are millions of Italians coming and so many other um, immigrant populations. And so the, the the number of Irish voters, Irish in places like New York, Boston, Chicago, begins to decline. It's, you know, their majority, they were a majority and they're, they're losing it. And so for these Irish politicians, like the people from Tammany Hall are just our best example, recognize that the only way they're going to stay in power is if they reach out and they draw in this new group. And so Tammany Hall and its equivalent um, in Chicago and Boston will do everything and anything for the Jews. And um, uh, they show up at Jewish events, they sign petitions for Jewish rights, they they give Jews jobs, they uh, uh, handle requests. Individually, so there's a, a Irish politician in New York named Johnny O'Hearn, and he um, he's the president of the New York City Council. He's the borough president of Manhattan eventually, and his papers are just full of these letters from him to like the the, the head of the Department of Corrections. Uh, Israel Goldberg is now in uh, the tombs. Would it be possible for you to let him out for the Jewish holidays? Or to the, somebody in the um, school system, uh, Fanny Goldberg uh, would like to get a job as a teacher, and on and on and on. And so obviously the Jewish constituents have written to Johnny, and he's happy to, <laughs> to serve them because every one of those people is a voter, and their brother, and their brother, obviously the women are not, uh, but uh, doing a favor for one Jew kind of multiplies and um, so um, he has everything to gain by helping them. They have everything to gain by asking him because they don't have that kind of clout. And uh, there's one wonderful letter that a group of um, rabbis wrote to, to Johnny. And they said it was, it was before Passover. And um, he, they wrote, and what they wanted was some like kiosk in Central Park where they could buy special kosher for Passover food uh, you know, during the eight days of the holiday. And so Johnny writes to the head of the Parks Commission 
and said, "Can you? is it possible to have a pavilion with food for my Hebrew constituents during their holiday? As like, okay, he wants to even serve their religious ends. And some, um, some of the Irish ward bosses will um, make sure the police, uh, the, that the fire department comes and cleans off the synagogues Friday morning. So when Sabbath begins, the synagogue building is, is gleaming from the outside and uh, to protect the synagogue and really anything that could get them that attention of those voters and um, the voters are grateful. And so um, those uh, reformed Jews, those again, well-off established American Jews, think that they, like many Americans, think machine politics is dirty and corrupt, which it probably was corrupt. Um, and they don't want Jews getting involved in it. And they're trying to get the Jews to become Republicans and to embrace reform politics. The Jewish vote, the immigrant voters couldn't care less, and um, um, they see the machine as their best friend. And Tammany Hall actually sponsors, um, I mean, it pays the money for one of the first Yiddish newspapers in the United States. And, uh, well, and it's a Tammany Hall rag. I mean, there's, there's every article um, about politics is about how great Tammany is, and and articles about, you know, uh, Charlie Murphy or Big Tim Sullivan or uh, and so on. But it's this is, uh, in a way, the birth of um, Yiddish journalism in the United States comes from Tammany Hall. And um, it's a kind of remarkable story. And renowned Irish figures in the realms of literature and the press proved helpful. During his tenure as editor of the Boston Pilot, John Boyle O'Reilly advocated on behalf of the Jews, reflecting his close friendship with Rabbi Solomon Schindler. O'Reilly takes on the Protestant kind of Brahmin, as they call them, a Yankee elite, um, for their anti-Semitism. And it's a kind of interesting little almost bookend. Um, John Boyle O'Reilly's daughter uh, becomes a journalist, Mary Mary Boyle O'Reilly, and in the 19-teens, she, she, she's a reporter, and she uh, covered a very sensational trial in um, the city of Kiev in which a Jew uh, named Mendel Bayless was accused of um, having killed a Christian child and used his blood to make matzah, which is blood libel. And so she writes these amazing articles. She goes to Kiev. She meets with the chief rabbi of Kiev, she writes these very passionate articles about, you know, the treatment of Mendel Bayless is the greatest indictment of Christianity and uh, shows that Christianity is still uh, mired in barbar, you know, the medieval barbarism. So there's the father and the daughter uh, with any number of other people in the middle. And one of those other people was the president of the ancient order of Hibernians, Charles P. Daly. Charles P. Daly is um, a judge, he's an Irish activist, he's a nationalist, and um, he writes the first comprehensive history of the Jews of the United States, as well as the first comprehensive history of the Jews of New York. And it, what's one thing that's notable about the books is that they come out as the uh, movement towards immigration restriction is becoming heated up. And um, there's so much talk about immigrants is bad for America. And so he writes these two books, uh, both of which are published by Jewish publishing houses. And um, 
And the point of the book is the Jews have been here since the 17th century. 1654, the first Jews come, so don't tell me they're um, aliens. And um, he emphasizes in the book, um, in his work, um, that Jews never let other Jews be poor or don't let them become public charges. They always take care of their own because one of the arguments against immigrants is they are a drain on society because they have to be taken care of by the public coffers. And Daly says, no, Jews don't do that. And so the argument he makes is so much more uh, uh, persuasive because it's not a Jew writing to defend his or her people, but it's uh, an Irish Catholic nationalist who um, is the, uh, the one who takes their cause, takes on their cause. And Michael Davitt, who was employed by the Hearst newspapers, wrote harrowing accounts of the pogroms in Kishinev. And um, he uh, is approached when he comes back to New York uh, by a group of Jewish communal activists and uh, leaders of the Jewish Publication Society and the American Jewish Committee and say, can you uh, take all those articles and expand upon them and write a book? Uh, and uh, in a way to make the case to the American public about what uh, uh, happened to to the Jews of of Kishinev. And um, David's book, uh, Within the Pale, is published by the Jewish Publication Society of America. And uh, the uh, Jewish communal leaders use this as, again, propaganda. I don't use the word propaganda as negative, but the country is debating immigration restriction. I mean, it's, it's the issue. It's more than the elephant in the room for the Jews. And any piece of evidence that can say Jews are being persecuted and they need the safety of the United States for basic survival, which is the point of David's book. It's not, it's not going to get better there and they have to find, they have to get out. But the book, as we know it, um, uh, owes its origins to these Jewish communal activists who want David to speak for them. Because again, if they're saying it, it's not the same thing as this Irish, you know, renowned uh, globe-trotting journalist. And figures in the Catholic Church were able to offer guidance. In Cincinnati, Rabbi Isaac Meyer Wise had approached the public schools authority to complain that Jewish children were subjected to readings of the King James Version of the Bible and that this was undermining their children's own faith and heritage. The Bishop of Cincinnati, John B. Purcell, who was from Mallow, advised them to approach the matter differently. He said they were addressing the issue as outsiders and instead he suggested that they might do better to make their case on the grounds that the American Constitution made a separation between church and state, and they would thus be addressing the issue from the point of view of Americans. And this approach proved successful. Uh, Yeah, and so it's the Irish Catholic uh, bishop in Cincinnati who gives them the ammunition. And um, in that and in so many other sort of little crusades or campaigns, the Irish are so much larger in number. I mean, when they speak, people listen because their numbers are great, and they have the more they have the American know-how 
They know how they are able, they, they have the knowledge to work the system. They have the lingo. The Jews don't have it yet. And um, in some ways, the Irish are more willing to be outra- outrageous, let's say, and to be militant and uh, to um, uh, kind of stick it to the Protestants in a way the Jews are, are they're small in number, they're newer, they're, um, they, they, that kind of militance is not their um, style. And so they team up with, but stay in the background as they allow the Catholics to, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the Catholic bishops say, look, if you don't clean, to the Protestants, if you don't clean up the schools, we'll just create our own schools. Okay, the Jews can't do that because their numbers are so small. And so it's that, um, I see that as part of that learning process, learning how to navigate American difference. And that, the, the Irish know how to do that, the Jews don't. And in New York, Archbishop Hughes, he was from Tyrone, advised on the matter of public schools and also on public hospitals. Public hospitals became stalking grounds for Protestant missionaries. And the Catholics say, forget it, we're building our own hospitals. And he you know, has encounters with Jewish community leaders about Jews should build their own hospitals. And there's, again, a kind of modeling. The Catholics do it first. It's the Irish Catholics who do it first. And the Jews say, yes, you know, because we too are suffering from these uh, uh, Protestant missionaries who are prowling uh, the halls of the, you know, the wards of the hospitals trying to get deathbed conversions. And uh, so uh, uh, he, I know, and he was certainly totally uh, uh, willing to Brooke, kind of the opprobrium of the Protestant New York elite. And then we have Tin Pan Alley, located at 28th and Broadway, the centre of the music publishing district. Tin Pan Alley doesn't start until 1892, when uh, a man called Rosenfeld, uh, and, and he, he was a songwriter, um, he was also a journalist, said that if you went to 28th and Broadway, he said uh, the noise of all the pianos playing melodies uh, for various performers hoping they would record their songs sounded like tin pans banging together. And he used it twice and suddenly 28th and Broadway became known as Tin Pan Alley. One of the first Irish-Jewish combos in Tin Pan Alley featured Al Dubin and Joseph Burke. They're the duo who gave us tiptoe through the tulips. They were the first uh, combo to be hired by the film industry as professional songwriters giving, uh, given a weekly wage. And uh, they went out to Hollywood and, and, and made a fortune by the standards of the time. Al Dubin's father had come to Philadelphia in 1892. He was exiled from, from Zurich in a pogrom and arrived in Philadelphia and became a successful physician and had a son um, who he hoped would become a, a, a lawyer or or a doctor, uh, but instead became a songwriter. He was actually expelled from school because he kept missing school because he was going to vaudeville shows. And this son of a Jewish immigrant who wrote the words to 42nd Street, We're in the Money, and Lullaby of Broadway, also teamed up with John J. O'Brien to put words to Twas Only an Irishman's Dream, a song in which an Irish immigrant pines for the homeland. And it's a totally invented Ireland, but it could have been a totally invented uh, country in Eastern Europe too. The idealisation of, of, uh, 
of the background of people who are now American. And, um, and this becomes a kind of a trope in Tin Pan Alley, uh, the idealization of the homeland, the romanticization of the homeland. Probably the most successful of the Irish-Jewish combos in Tin Pan Alley were Jerome and Schwartz. Now, Gene Schwartz was a, a Jewish immigrant from, from Hungary. Uh, and uh, I always assumed that Jerome was a Jewish name. But uh, William Jerome um, wasn't William Jerome at all. He was William Flannery. And uh, that was a time when, when uh, a lot of uh, movement was going on in the music industry from being an Irish-dominated industry to being a Jewish-dominated industry. And certainly music publishing became dominated by Jewish composers and Jewish publishing houses. American popular music and Tin Pan Alley became became a, a Jewish, a basically Jewish-dominated industry, but not before there was a lot of Irish-Jewish combinations and, uh, and, and name-changing going on. And uh, there are a few very colourful examples of that. Uh, I suppose the most famous uh, woman performer uh, in, in, in Tin Pan Alley uh, and on the American stage was a woman called Nora Bays, and she recorded... Uh, a lot of Irish songs. Uh, has anybody here seen Kelly? Has anybody here seen Kelly? Oh, you know him by his mind. And other songs as well, and became known as a kind of an Irish heroine of American popular music. Um, and I suppose the pivotal moment in that was in April 1917 when America uh, officially declares war. And, and President Wilson declares war uh, on Germany. Uh, George Michael Cohen uh, writes this song uh, on the Long Island Railroad called Over There. And the woman he picks to record it is Nora Bays, and it sells a million copies within a month. and uh, becomes associated with uh, American patriotism. Uh, and uh, Nora Bays is the darling of America, but she's seen as an Irish-American because of all the Irish songs that she recorded. Um, and uh, it wasn't until after she dies that her real name is revealed, which is Leonora Goldberg. And she changed her name uh, in the 1890s when she came to New York. Uh, and uh, she... Uh, she does so because at that point the industry, the music industry is still associated with Irish people. And you can only change your name once, really. And uh, there was uh, an immigrant called uh, Kyohan, uh, and uh, he changes his name to uh, Kohan. And uh, Jeremiah Kyohan becomes Jerry Kohan. And his son is George. Cohan, uh, who becomes one of the most dominant figures in Tin Pan Alley. And of course he's Irish, but a lot of people think he's Jewish because of the name Cohan. There are not too many C-O-H-A-Ns in the Irish telephone directory, are there? Um, so Cohan becomes Cohan. Leonora Goldberg becomes Nora Bays. And uh, uh, William Flannery becomes William Jerome. 
But I think one of the most profound places where the Irish teach the Jews to become American is most Jewish kids who, you know, immigrant who either came, children who came as immigrants or who were they uh, uh, born to immigrant parents once they came to the United States were taught by Irish American women. I mean, they were the majority of the school teachers in New York, Boston, Chicago, and in memoir after memoir by Jews who grew up in, you know, immigrant homes in those cities. And they say, Miss Sullivan, Miss O'Brien, you know, Miss uh, uh, O'Reilly, she taught me how to speak English. We came from homes where nobody spoke English. She taught us what it, how to speak English, how to dress like an American, how does American comport herself, how do you wear your hair? Uh, it's just like so almost physically the model of uh, American respectability. And um, the memoir, the, uh, there's a, a very important book that came out in 1976 called The World of Our Fathers by uh, uh, um, Irving Howe. And it's sort of this big doorstopper book about the Jewish immigrant experience. And um, years and years and years of research. And in his section on education, he's talking about these Irish American women who were the school teachers. He said, surely there must have been one bigot among them, <laughs> because all of the memoirs are about she was wonderful. And while the war united different ethnic groups under the one flag, it also unleashed tremendous xenophobia. And it's not surprising that uh, the uh, during the war uh, we see the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. Okay, and the Klan, unlike the Klan of the eighteen late late eighteen sixties to eighteen seventies, which was anti-black and was trying to prevent black uh, uh, you know the voting of the former formerly enslaved, um, the Klan of the nineteen teens again of the World War One era was anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish and anti-black, and it was probably more anti-Catholic than anything else. And again, it's the Catholics and the Irish Catholics who are the spearheads for anti-Klan activity. I mean, they go to Klan rallies and they beat up Klansmen. And um, the um, uh, the Knights of Columbus, okay, um, one, of, one of the uh, leaders of the Knights of Columbus decides that what's really important to combat the Klan is not just beating them up, uh, but in fact to issue a series of books to show how you can be an American and. Okay, and so it's called The Racial Contribution to American Civilization. And sure enough, there's a book about the Jews. Uh, so it's a book about the Jewish contribution to American society, paid for by the Knights of Columbus, okay, uh, issued uh, through this essentially Irish Catholic organization. And it's very much like Charles P. Daly's book of the eighteen, uh, the end of the eighteenth, of the end of the nineteenth century, which is Joseph contributed so much, but it's paid for by the Knights of Columbus, and um, so it's the the xenophobia of the po of the wartime and and then the immediate post war, which does lead to immigration restriction, um, is a uh, brings Jews and Catholics together. And again, the Catholics are basically Irish. And, you know, again, there are obviously lots of other Catholics, but it's the Irish who, who are in the forefront of this. And um, they're the ones who take the lead in trying to battle the Klan. Or we'll march right through like the Irish always do And we'll sing fog and bala in the morning You know, when you find... Uh, at the heart of, of the Tin Pan Alley years, 
songs like Fog Abala, which means clear the way, uh, written about the Irish in, in the First World War. Fog of Bala, the Dublin boys are here. Fog of Bala, you'll listen to them cheer. We'll carry on when the last one is gone. And so on, uh, written by two Jewish songwriters. A Gaelic phrase, Fog of Bala, and uh, Abe Oldman and Ed Rose, two Jewish uh, songwriters, writing with ease uh, a song titled in the Gaelic language. Um, you know at this point that, that, that the business is, is very fluid. Um, I suppose, to me, the, the greatest Irish-American Jewish song of all is the song written by uh, William Jerome and, and Jean Schwartz, If It uh, Wasn't For The Irish And The Jews. They're the same people who wrote My Irish Molly, which became a big hit in Ireland, uh, recorded by the Adan and originally by the, the Flanagan brothers. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's, a, of course, a Jewish-Irish combo song. But if it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews, um, cites all the things that might not have happened in American history and in American life if it wasn't for the combination of those two groups working together uh, in competition, but together. And, and the last verse, uh, Tammany would surely fall. There'd really be no hall at all if it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews. Tammany Hall, of course, is, 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 uh, is American, it's American democracy. What would this great Yankee nation really, really ever do if it wasn't for a Levy, a Monaghan or Donahue? Where would we get our policemen Why Uncle Sam would have the blues? Without the Pats and Isidores, we'd have no big department stores if it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews. Then it talks about the entertainment industry. What would we do for amusement? There would be no place to go. If it weren't for the Schuberts, Frank McKee and Marcus Lowe, K&E and Billy Brady, Hammerstein, I must include. I once heard Dave Belasco say, you couldn't stage a play today if it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews. Entertainment, politics, capitalism, department stores, all celebrated in a very ironic and good-humoured way that uh, they wouldn't have happened, really, if Irish and the Jewish people hadn't pooled their resources and gotten together. What would this great Yankee nation really, really ever do if it wasn't for a Levy, a Monaghan or Donahue? Where would we get our policemen? Why, Uncle Sam would have the blues. Without the Pats and Isidores, there'd be no big department stores if it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews. The Shamrock and the Star was produced by JJ O'Shea and was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme.